You love them, you hate them, and you can't stop talking about them. Announcers, analysts, pundits, they're all fair game. It's Sports Media Payhem with Alex Reamer. Time to let it rip. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Sports Media Mayhem Podcast. My name is Alex Streamer. It's a pleasure to be with you as it is each and every week. And man, oh man, am I looking forward to what we have for you here today, because today is Derek Jeter Day. That's right. It is my review of part one of the seven part. Yes, seven part. That means seven hour Derek Jeter ESPN docuseries appropriately titled The Captain Now, as we talked about last week with Ryan Glass-Spiegel, media reporter for the New York Post, why is ESPN airing a seven-part, again, seven-part means seven hours, the Derek Jeter docuseries? It's because they need to fill time during the summer. So knowing that, we can feel a little bit better about this endeavor, which really is just a poor man's version of The Last Dance, or even... In the arena, the Tom Brady docuseries, though, I don't know. Those two may run neck and neck in terms of just banalities. And let's be honest, they're both copycats of The Last Dance. So here you go. You know, the main, of course, me being from Boston, I don't like the Derek Jeter docuseries. I think it's annoying. I think it's obnoxious. I think Derek Jeter is obnoxious. I think the Yankees dynasty is obnoxious. So let me just put this all out here. Right away, I am not giving an unbiased review of this docuseries, but I think that I am really capturing what most people feel about the captain in any sort of Yankeeography that belongs on the Yes Network. Uh, if you're not a Yankee fan, you will not like this. Just like if you're not a Patriots fanboy, you probably hated, if not totally avoided, the Tom Brady 10 part, yes, 10 part man in the arena docuseries. And The biggest issue that you have, that I have, with this Derek Jeter project is, of course, there are a million interesting ways you can go, right? I mean, the Yankee dynasty, one of the most captivating stories in the history of pro sports, the most famous baseball team, and the biggest media market with some of the game's biggest stars, most outlandish personalities, George Steinbrenner at the top. There are so many ways that you could go with this, but what do we get In The Captain, we get a sterilized version of the events told by Derek Jeter and told in the way that Derek Jeter wants it to be told. And I'm not a filmmaker, shockingly. I'm not a filmmaker, but I've watched films. I've watched documentaries. I'm a writer. And I know that when you're writing a good story, you want there to be obstacles. You want there to be tension. And... The biggest problem with the captain is that there's no tension. The biggest moment of tension that Derek Jeter encounters on his nearly unblocked path to the big leagues is Andy Pettit big-timing him at his locker. Yes, that's the story. Derek Jeter gets promoted to A-ball. He's struggling his first season in the minor leagues. He introduces himself to Andy Pettit, who has the locker next at him, and Jeter says that Pettit... Just totally ignored him. Yep, Derek Jeter told Andy Pettit, hey, you look like my uncle. Andy looked at him, looked back, said nothing. Oh, the horror. 
And that's really the biggest moment of tension that we get. I mean, Jeter, as I said, struggles in his first minor league season. He can't hit. He commits 56 errors at shortstop. But then he starts playing better. And a couple years later, is in the big leagues by 1995. The Yankees make the playoffs that year. And as we know, the dynasty begins the following season in 1996. So that's really it. There are no obstacles. There's not a lot of tension. Derek Jeter, a straight line to the big leagues. He's drafted in the first round out of high school. Uh, I mentioned struggles in his first minor league season, but then turns it around. Yankees win the World Series in 96, and the legend of Jeter is born and only grows bigger as the years go on. You look again at Michael Jordan. A lot of obstacles in that story and a lot of tension in that story. We, of course, have the gambling addiction, his weird minor league baseball stint, his very public feuds with teammates, uh, and the GM, Jerry Krause, of course, which was talked about at length in that docuseries, which wasn't just a Michael Jordan docuseries, but The Last Dance was really about the Bulls dynasty as a whole. We learned about the tension with Jerry Krause. We learned about the tension with Scottie Pippen. We learned about Phil Jackson. It really told the story of the Bulls. Obviously, Michael Jordan is the central component of that story, but there were other stars who got their due. So far, one episode in, the captain is really all about Derek Jeter and nobody else. You even look at Tom Brady. Talk about the obstacles in his story. As you may have heard once or twice, he was a sixth-round pick, had to work his way up. He was not a first-rounder. And yeah, Brady is very cautious in his language, just like Jeter is. So his feud with Bill Belichick is tiptoed around in his docuseries. But still, Tom Brady's end with the Patriots, his acrimonious end with the Patriots, frankly, contains far more drama and far more palace intrigue than anything Derek Jeter handled with the Yankees, or at least anything that we know publicly about what Jeter handled with the Yankees. We'll see what happens with A-Rod later in the series when they address that, but reviews say that Jeter tiptoes around those issues too. Uh, You know, anybody who grew up as a baseball fan, as I did in the late 90s, early aughts, or coming of age, you know the Derek Jeter biography like the back of your hand, even if you hated the Yankees like I grew up doing, right? You know that he grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in a biracial family, and that's interesting, and there is tension and obstacles there, but it's briefly covered in part one. It's glossed over. It's really just addressed in generalities. Uh, Jeter says his parents sat him down one day and told him, hey, people are going to treat you differently. And what's Jeter's quote about that? Quote, they prepared us. You're going to deal with some things and you learn how to deal with it. Close quote. That's it. All right. Simple enough, right? You grow up in a biracial family in the Midwest. Your parents sit you down. They say, hey, son, you're going to deal with some things, and you learn how to deal with it. And boom, it's not addressed for the rest of part one. Again, just really broad generalities there. Later in the series, reviews say, Jeter addresses the criticisms that he was colorless. Maybe that will be more interesting. But again, when it comes to growing up in a biracial family in Kalamazoo, Michigan, really just glossed over and spoken in generalities. And, you know, I mentioned the Jordan copycatting. It's obvious that ESPN views this as an accompanying piece to The Last Dance. Uh, You know, they're trying to paint Jeter as this competitive egomaniac out of the Jordan and Brady school. Early in this episode, Jeter says, quote, some people don't like when you say they can't do something. 
I love it personally because I'll prove you wrong. I'm a big I told you so person. When I see you, I'm going to say I told you. That's how I'm wired. Sounds a lot of fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. So again, that's something you could hear Brady saying verbatim, hear Jordan saying verbatim. And it's not surprising that Derek Jeter has an egomaniacal competitive streak, but I'm like, really? I mean, you're really just trying to shoehorn this in here at the top of the episode and set the tone. And as I said earlier, I guess two big problems, no obstacles, no real tension that's addressed. And also we know the story that's being told. This is an old story. I'm sure there's a lot of uncovered things that have not been told about the Yankees dynasty and the building of that dynasty, but we know the glossed over sugar-coated version, right? George Steinbrenner in 1990 gets banned from baseball for hiring a gambler to dig up dirt on Dave Winfield. Dave Winfield, who coincidentally is Jeter's favorite player growing up. So then George Steinbrenner exiled from the organization. George Michaels takes over. He develops a minor league system. He drafts Jeter and Pettit and Bernie Williams and Mariana Rivera and Jorge Posada. And it's a good thing that George Steinbrenner wasn't in charge then because he would have traded all these prospects. The dynasty would have never been built. But yep, Gene Michaels allowed to develop the prospects. Buck Showalter coaches them up at the big league level. And they make the playoffs in 95. And the dynasty begins the year after. And that's how it was built. And again, if you grew up as a baseball fan, late 90s, early aughts, if you were uh, well into your baseball fandom during that time as well, you know this story. So the Jeter docuseries, maybe it changes as we go through the next six hours of this. But my review thus far is A, no tension, none. Again, Jeter's biggest moment of tension was Andy Pettit big-timing him when they first interacted in single A. Okay, not exactly gripping. And B, we know the story that's being told. We know how the Yankee dynasty was built. We know about Jeter's competitive nation, a competitive nature. Tell us something new. Well, in part one, they didn't. Here's hoping in part two, they do. Because again, we have six more hours to go. All right, so we go from Derek Jeter to one of his good pals and someone who I like a lot better, quite frankly. I know that's very important. David Ortiz. Now, David Ortiz, I think, has had a really interesting week and a week in which he's shown himself to be a real media force. Uh, He was in the dugout during Tuesday night's All-Star game. Uh, Those beautiful, beautiful All-Star uniforms that we all saw, right? I mean, nothing makes you go crazy, like just seeing AL on a hat instead of NL. I don't get into uniform debates all too often. I think it's kind of childish, quite frankly. But I will say, why can't the players just wear their team's uniforms during the All-Star game like they used to? That is so much better. So much better. I mean, come on. Anyway, back to David Ortiz. He was in the dugout during Tuesday's game in the American League dugout. And... Interviewed seemingly every player who was around. I had a great little chit-chat with Dusty Baker. Ortiz asked Baker if he could get in that bat. Baker told him, hey, I know you can still go deep. I'm saving you for the ninth. Uh, He was asking Alec Manoa, the Blue Jays' ace, how he would pitch to him. Manoa said he'd start high and tight. Then Ortiz cut him off and said he'd take him deep. And then when Ortiz got to Aaron Judge, pay the man, pay the man the same line that he used on Xander Bogarts 
earlier this week in an interview on Fox's pregame show. And I tweeted this out. And of course, all the fabulous people on Twitter didn't quite understand what I was getting at. So let me further explain here on the pod. I don't think there's a single athlete more respected in the sport than David Ortiz. And people on Twitter came at me with Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Bill Russell, Peyton Manning, Wayne Gretzky, Tiger Woods, Roger Federer, Walter Payton, Lionel Messi, Kobe. And look, as I said, you fabulous Twitter people, I love you so much. But I really think that you were misunderstanding what I was putting out there. I don't know about Bill Russell or Walter Payton, obviously far before my time, but I wasn't saying that Ortiz is the greatest athlete to ever play his sport. I'm not saying Ortiz is the, uh, you know, most, most, most respected player in terms of talent or ability to ever play his sport. I'm saying by his peers, by his peers, Ortiz, I think is the most respected and most revered. I don't think that Tom Brady, for example, could go on the sidelines of the AFC during the Pro Bowl or however they do it now, right? Oh, they have different players draft teams, right? But you get my point. I don't think Tom Brady or even Peyton Manning, who is far more affable and gregarious than Brady, I don't think even they could walk up and down a sideline during an NFL game or, as I mentioned, during a Pro Bowl game and get that type of engagement with every single player that Ortiz got. I certainly don't think Michael Jordan could have accomplished that. Uh, we know from watching The Last Dance that Jordan was not the most well-liked player in the game. Uh, Tiger Woods, I certainly don't think, could get that in golf. Go on down the line. Everybody loves David Ortiz. Nobody is more respected by their peers than Ortiz. And as a result, Ortiz can become a very powerful voice if he wants to be. I mentioned what he did earlier in the week with Xander Bogarts. He was interviewing Bogarts on one of Fox's pregame shows and winds up throwing dollar bills at him, saying, pay the man, pay the man. He spoke with WEI's Rob Bradford this week as well, Ortiz did, and campaigned for the Red Sox to re-sign Raphael Devers and Xander Bogarts, talking about how rare it is to find players who can thrive in Boston. And the Red Sox probably don't love hearing these kinds of things from Ortiz. They're getting a lot of pressure from a lot of angles to re-sign Bogarts, to re-sign Devers, to pay their two homegrown stars what they're actually worth, something that they have not done very often during the John Henry ownership regime. And it's tough enough for the Red Sox, who we know are very PR conscious. It's tough enough for them to hear criticism from schmucks like me, but imagine hearing it from David Ortiz. I think that would really hurt them because Ortiz is such a powerful voice, not just in terms of shaping fan opinion, but in terms of the game as well. And in terms of how the players view him across the game, if David Ortiz starts beating the drum that the Red Sox won't pay their players, that the Red Sox are cheaping out. I think that will have far ranging impacts as to how other players across baseball view the Red Sox So the Red Sox better be careful here because if they get on the wrong side of David Ortiz, that could be very bad news for them. And look, is what Ortiz doing journalism? Absolutely not. Ortiz is not unbiased. He's not objective. 
He doesn't pretend to be. And a couple years ago, when I was maybe a little more uptight than I am now, I would have railed against that and said, ah, who needs this? Ortiz is just a fanboy. Let's trade out his microphone for the pom-poms. But now in today's era, I think Ortiz has such a valuable role to play. Because let's be honest, the walls between media people and athletes have never been greater. There is so much separation these days, whether it's league-mandated policy, beat writers and reporters and announcers, as we know, no longer travel with players. There's no more mingling in hotel lobbies, hotel bars. There's social media. Players are hosting their own podcasts. There's the Players' Tribune. Go on down the line. There is really no need, if you are a professional athlete, there is really no need to court the media at all. There are, they are typically, we are typically more trouble than we're worth. If you want to get a message out there, you can get it out there yourself. So that's where someone like David Ortiz comes into the equation. Ortiz can actually get these baseball players to open up and say stuff that they wouldn't say with anybody else and to be more comfortable with Ortiz than they are with anybody else. And this is especially important in baseball because as we know, so few of these players actually open up to the press and you add in the fact that there's a huge language barrier when it comes to many of these Latin and Hispanic players as well. Ortiz helps open all of that up. He really does. So again, Is this journalism? No, not even close. Am I relying on David Ortiz to give me valuable insight about the game and analysis? No, I'm not even really counting on him to do that. I am counting on David Ortiz to be a personality. I'm counting on David Ortiz to get people to open up to him. I'm counting on David Ortiz to get these players to actually show show some life when a microphone is put in front of them. And that's very valuable to Fox. That's very valuable to baseball. And it can be very valuable to the David Ortiz brand. And as I said, Ortiz can have a real powerful voice. It's one thing if your average commentator or pundit rails against a team such as the Red Sox for not paying their guys. But if somebody like Ortiz steps up and starts doing that, that changes the equation. And that can be a lot more difficult to handle. So we'll see what happens there with David Ortiz and if he continues to ratchet up the pressure on the Red Sox. Uh, One team that opted to not face the pressure at all from the media or really face any questions from the media uh, this week was the New York Knicks, who did not opt to hold a press conference when introducing their new free agent signing, Jalen Brunson, who they gave over $100 million to. Instead, the Knicks made his introduction a special on the MSG network, which, of course, they own. And that is just really, really ridiculous. I mean, what could they be hiding? We know about how these introductory press conferences go. Tough questions are seldom asked. It's really a feel-good event. It's a dog-and-pony show. But the Knicks didn't want to engage in that at all. They introduced Jalen Brunson 
their star off-season free agent signing on a closed special on the team-owned MSG network. I mean, that is a weak look. It's a weak look for the Knicks, first and foremost, and it's a weak look for Jalen Brunson, too. I mean, you come to New York, you're supposed to deal with the pressure of playing in New York, being with the Knicks, all the media scrutiny, and the team shields you for what should be, again, the easiest press conference you ever do as a member of the Knicks, your introductory presser. I mean, what tough questions could Jalen Brunson possibly be asked? You know, would people ask him why he thinks he's worth the money? Would they maybe try to sneak in a question about Donovan Mitchell, who the Knicks were reportedly pursuing as well? I mean, that's stuff that Brunson could answer. That's stuff that management should be able to answer. And the troubling thing about this is with the proliferation of T-Mones networks, and there are so many T-Mones regional sports networks, I think we're just going to see more of this. You know, it ties into what I was saying a couple minutes ago with David Ortiz. The wall has never been greater between athletes and media members. And the same thing applies to teams and media members. The wall has never been greater. Teams can really insulate themselves. They own their own regional sports networks. They all own major web platforms. The leagues all own their networks. I think one of the more interesting anecdotes to come from the Adam Schefter profile that I talked about last week, the Schefter piece in the Washington Post, which was very revealing for a number of reasons, talks about how it works between the NFL and NFL Network. And when Schefter left at the NFL Network, uh, the NFL actually took his phone and deleted all his contacts. And yep, you have to start anew. And if you work for the NFL Network and NFL Media, they can feed you news. I think there was an anecdote in that article where Jerry Jones talked about the importance in a league meeting about feeding the NFL Network news when it was started to develop its legitimacy. Major League Baseball is the MLB Network. NBA is NBA TV. Go on down the line. There are partnership agreements everywhere. The lines are so crossed these days that... Even if you do hold a regular press conference like the Knicks should have held with Jalen Brunson, there are so many different agendas in there anyway, many of which line up with what the player and team want to do, and that is promote, promote, promote. So you're just going to continue to see more of this sterilized environment where journalists are shut out. It's no no non-team affiliated cameras or microphones allowed. And it just creates this culture of propaganda. And it really takes the journalism out of sports journalism. I mean, we are now are pretty much in a world where traveling sports writers, you, you can watch some practice, you go see a game, but and you can work the locker room, but it's not nearly as much time as it used to be. There are far fewer opportunities than there used to be. There are so many people looking to work the room as well, it becomes really impersonal. And what becomes really impersonal, you just don't get a lot of the insightful anecdotes that you get that tell you a lot about who athletes actually are. And what you do get is you get a lot of blowups. Like we see a few times during the NBA playoffs, players being very curt to reporters at press conferences because there's just such a power imbalance there, right? The player is at the podium. The reporter is at the seat. It's like when you go see your boss and he's sitting at the big 
the big desk and you're sitting at the little chair way at the end of it and you look so small in comparison to them. It's the same kind of concept. And, and as a result, athletes feel like they can berate media members from that podium because they don't know them anyway. And they're just little gnats. And I think the teams happily feed into that mentality. And an example is, again, doing what the Knicks did with Jalen Brunson by not even having them answer questions from the press in what, again, would be the easiest press conference he's ever conducted as a member of the Knicks. So that is a weak move from the New York Knicks, though. Those who follow the Knicks probably cannot expect anything less. But again, the real worrisome thing is it's not just the Knicks. I think we're going to see probably more teams do things like this. I mean, even the Red Sox, they, they seldom hold press conferences. They uh, they sign free agents, fire managers, and don't explain it to the press. So it's just not the Knicks. But this is a very transparent effort by the Knicks and a very obvious effort by the Knicks to totally shut the, the media out. Um, the last point I want to talk about here on the show this week is Charles Barkley. This is huge news potentially. Who would have thunk that Joe Buck and Troy Aikman leaving Fox for ESPN might be the second biggest media move when all is said and done this year? And that is because Charles Barkley could leave inside the NBA for Live Golf, the Saudi-backed upstart golf league that has been poaching stars from the PGA Tour. Dan Patrick, on his radio show this week, said it's a possibility. He said, quote, so if you're going to go after Charles Barkley, you don't have a TV deal and you have David Faraday, what are you going to give Charles Barkley? And Charles Barkley says he's going to listen to them. I believe tomorrow night he'll decide what he's going to do and he might have to leave TNT. That's why this is a huge deal. And Charles knows that he may have to leave TNT to do this. So that's Dan Patrick speaking on Tuesday about Charles Barkley. So this decision could be imminent. And obviously, Charles Barkley can do what he wants. And maybe what Charles Barkley wants is to leave inside the NBA and work for Live Golf for a crap ton of money. He's going to be 60 years old next year. He's been on inside the NBA for years and years. He's been around the NBA for decades upon decades. We know he loves golf. So maybe Charles says, hey, at this point in my career, I don't care. I'm just going to make as much money as I can doing this. And I don't care if I'm irrelevant because I've been relevant my whole life. And I will enjoy just milking as much money as I can out of live golf. And maybe that's the case. And again, if that's how Charles Barkley feels, that's entirely his right. But, ugh, ugh. I mean, that would suck, wouldn't it? Charles Barkley remains, I think, the best analyst going today. And I know people can nitpick at him. I know that he has certain biases out there. He's certainly not the most analytically inclined analyst. And you listen to guys like J.J. Reddick, certainly. Um, and some other more recently retired players who ESPN has featured. Patrick Beverly, still active, of course, was excellent on ESPN during the NBA playoffs this year. Listen to those guys. And yeah, they are more plugged into today's game. And I think J.J. Reddick certainly pays attention to every little thing and is much more attuned to what people are saying online and looking at the game in more of a new age and holistic fashion and really up with the current trends on the game. 
a way that somebody like Barkley probably isn't. But Charles Barkley is still the best at what he does because, A, he's entertaining. And never forget, this is about entertainment first and foremost. And right along with that, B, he is really opinionated, is not afraid to rip teams, is not afraid to rip players, is not afraid to rip coaches. And again, that's what this that's what this is really about. This is about entertainment, being opinionated, and that's what Barkley does so well. And I would just say, if Charles Barkley leaves for Live Golf, does he really want to be money whipped by the Saudis that much? I mean, really, does Charles Barkley need the money that much? I know that you may want to get paid an ungodly amount of money to work for Live Golf, but do you really need to be money whipped by the Saudis that much? I mean, what a loss it would be for us if Charles Barkley left inside the NBA. And, you know, again, maybe this is what he wants, but I have to imagine that after a little bit, being irrelevant in the live golf world would probably get a little old for Charles Barkley as well. He would maybe miss the juice that comes from inside the NBA as well, because if Charles Barkley was sick of it and just wanted to retire, he could have done that years ago. Again, believe me, he's not working for the money anymore. Though I will say, and this is a little separate from Barkley, but I am a little tired of the over-the-top moralizing that many do when it comes to live golf. Listen, as an out gay man, I have no warm feelings for the Saudis whatsoever. And that's another reason why, actually, I have warm feelings for Charles Barkley. A couple weeks ago, Barkley said he was making an appearance in Lake Tahoe at a celebrity golf tournament. He was up on the stage during an event. He grabbed the mic and said, if you don't like gay or trans people, F you. And I loved hearing that. I mean, I lo- that is the most succinct way possible to support LGBTQ people, something that Barkley has done for the entirety of his career. So I love Charles Barkley. And I have no love lost for the Saudis at all. But, you know, I hate to break it to you, but Live Golf is not the only entity that is funded by, mm, let's just say, some questionable or bad actors, right? I mean, they're not the only sports league that takes money from really bad actors and not the only corporation that takes money from really bad actors. So, and the Saudis are terrible. I think that anybody who does join up with Live Golf, whether as a player or commentator, should answer questions about how they feel about taking Saudi money. But let's just not limit it to them. I think the attention that's been placed on Live Golf has kind of become outweighs, I think, has kind of become a little too much. And I think we should reel it back in. And if we're going to apply this pressure to Live Golf and people who take the Saudi money, then we should do that to everybody else as well, because few people are innocent here of not taking blood money, except me, except me. I did this all pro bono. Uh, So thank you all for listening to another episode of the Sports Media Mayhem podcast. Against my better judgment, my Twitter DMs are open. So if you have any show ideas, guest ideas, hit me up on Twitter. My username is at AlexDreamer1. That again is at AlexHumor1. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you next on the show next week.